I don't think I would have had to make that decision, but they're definitely starting to talk about who was going to live and who was not. Basically, the old triage system of going to die, can wait, needs immediate care. That was starting to come in. I was kind of say, well, there's people who are bioethicists. They're ethicists, you know, medical ethicists. This is what they've been training for for 100 years, how to make these decisions. They were starting to chime in. Okay, this is the considerations. What's the value of life? Who should be saved and who shouldn't be? Should a, an 80-year-old patient with dementia not be as valuable as a, a 45-year-old father of three? Hi, this is Josh, and this is The Joshua Spodek Show, formerly Leadership in the Environment. I still bring you leaders in the area of the environment in the form of leaders and role models. Everyone treats stewardship like a burden or a chore, deprivation, sacrifice. So did I until I actually tried it seriously. It is a joy. Everything about it. We're here to share that joy. Meet amazing world-around people from all parts of life. Hear about them, what the environment means to them, and hear most of them find something meaningful to act on and then to share their experience. Why? Because stewardship and acting to help others for something greater than all of us creates about the greatest feeling humans can get, as does fresh air, clear water, delicious food, and clean land. That's what we're bringing you. This episode continues the pattern of bringing people who have known me for a long time to show where this personal transformation in me to acting so with so much stewardship comes from. When I tell people the answers and everybody asks, they don't seem to be satisfied with my answers. So I bring other people. I started with my mom a couple episodes ago, which I encourage you to listen to. In this case, Michael Turner is my brother-in-law, my sister's husband. It happens he's also been on the front lines of COVID-19 as a surgeon, as a specialist in New York City, and he has worked through the height of the pandemic. So you get two amazing episodes here as, as I see it. He starts by sharing some surgeon stories. I'm sure you've talked to doctors and hear amazing stories of things that they do. So in one, it's him saving the life of someone on an airplane. You know how in the movies, when the plane captain goes on and says, is there a doctor on board? Well, he was the only doctor on the flight. Now, according to him, he didn't fully save a guy's life, but it sounded pretty close. So you'd be the judge from the story, but you'll hear that story. He treated a Victoria's Secret model. This is what happens when you're a surgeon in New York City, famous actors and singers. So you get to hear these inside things. And then we talk about the pandemic and you'll hear how he risked his life to conduct surgeries, to save people's lives, inside views of doctors fed insufficient information about this pandemic that was going to come and seeing that information dawn on them as it's happening, dealing with government, dealing with overrun hospitals, hospitals shutting down, and most of all, dealing with the looming threat of might he might have to choose, and all of people in his community might have to choose who lives and dies. So you get to hear what this is like from someone who is there. Then we talk about what brought me to invite him, which is his seeing me change over the years. He's known me since I think it was 1987, not as long as my mom, but more than almost anybody. And I got more than I expected to and different views than my mom because of it going back so far. It's a long conversation. Roughly the first half is on COVID and being a doctor. Roughly the second half is on leadership in the environment. So if you want to divide it up, you can look, listen in two different times. Either way, Michael is one of the top specialists in his field in New York City during a historic pandemic. And he's also known me nearly as long as anyone. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Michael Turner. Michael, how are you doing? I'm very good. How are you, Josh? I'm very good. So I want to give some context for this for the listeners. So Michael is my brother-in-law. So he's married to my sister. And people who are regular listeners will have heard me or my episode with my mom a little while ago. And now why did I jump from my mom to my brother-in-law? Well, I, I've asked my father, my stepfather. I think I asked 
Susie, my sister, your wife, but you are a surgeon in New York City in the middle of COVID-19. And it seemed like I bet a lot of people would like to hear every view is unique, but you, so you have a particular view that's probably in the thick of things. As it happens, we, we were just talking about this. We met each other in the 80s. So outside of like direct blood relatives or step relatives, you're one of the longest people, longest relationships that I've had. And, but really without you, you were a big party into bringing in my, my first nephew and my two nieces. And they've changed my life tremendously. And so I, you get credit for that. No, thank you. And then also over the past few years, you've seen me and my environmental stuff. I don't know what it looks like for you guys. But so I think you've seen my behavior change environmentally. And I think people keep asking me, they want background. And I keep, whatever I answer, I seem not to be able to tell enough about myself that satisfies whatever their questions are. So that's a view that might be interesting that Michael and I have this burpee connection. (laughs) I'm not sure how many of these things we'll get to. I was going to say, you know, I've seen a progression, not just your environment and leadership. I've seen you actually progress. As you said, we've known each other through the 80s. I've seen you go to college. I've seen you go through life. Probably, um, you know, it's been more than half of my life and probably more than half of yours. So not only do you see your, your, your work with the environment and leadership and business and so on, I've actually seen the whole progression, which has been always been fascinating to me. Oh, I'm going to get more than I expected. <laughs> so there's one other thing too, that you and I, depending on how you count, I think you have more degrees than I do. Yes. If you include my bachelor degree, I have four. So I could say I have five because on the way to the PhD, you get a master's and an MPhil. But anyway, we're up there pretty high. Uh, we're overeducated, yes. Yeah. So what are your degrees and, and what do you do for a living? Because I think you, you're not just working for a living. I think you love what you do. Yeah, I'm pretty passionate about what I do. I'm an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, which is basically I do surgery of the jaws. And you know, most people know of oral surgeons, oh, I had my wisdom teeth out or a dental implant or anything. But I mean, that's a small portion of what I do. I um, was considered a hospital-based surgeon. So I work within the hospital systems. I work right now for Mount Sinai Hospital System, which is one of the larger uh, health systems in the country. Uh, not the largest, but one of them. So I deal with larger reconstruction and, and procedures, which are, are most office-based oral surgeons don't don't deal with. And my training came initially after college. I went to I went to dental school, and then at that point, I decided to go into oral maxillofacial surgery. And then I went to a residency, and during my residency, I went back to medical school, and I got a, a degree in, in uh, a medical degree. And then I finished my training. And then uh, I was in private practice for a year, which I didn't really care for. And uh, I went back into academics and went to New York University. And while I was an assistant professor at New York University, I I obtained a master's in clinical research and translational medicine. And then I left NYU and I now I'm at Mount Sinai Health System. So how many years of education is that? Well, 14, actually, because I had, uh, I've also did a dental residency at Johns Hopkins between dental school and, and my oral maxillofacial surgery training. I remember a few stories. Was there a story about a helicopter crash that you worked on? Was that like an important thing? I just, I feel like you're one of few people in New York City that does what you do. And every now and then you're like called in for some very important things or something like that. 
Yeah, I mean, I've been called in for some odd things and important things and not so important. Many, most of the things I get called in for are not that important. But uh, I've had some interesting things occur to me. Like when I was in um, at my residency, um, there was a, a TWA jet that went down off the uh, eastern port of Long Island. I don't know if you remember that. And uh, I was on call that, that day in the hospital when that went down. And we were expecting something to occur and it was just crickets and nothing came in and nothing came down and and we were expecting something to have occurred and and that was it and that was like one of the first like big events that was newsworthy and and um, but do you remember that josh i'm trying to think if that's if i've transformed a plane into a helicopter in my memory or something like that yeah that's probably well i i one time as a medical student you know the story about how i took care of someone i've taken care of a bunch of people on airplanes before. Oh yeah. When they said, is there a doctor on the bo- on board? Yeah, they do that often. Uh, they're unfortunately, and um, everyone kind of looks over to see if someone else is going to get up. And then of course no one gets up and you have to go over and see what's going on. Well, you had that case that was from, I think, India to London and you saved someone's life. Uh, I, uh, no, I did not save their life per se, but do you want me to get into that one? I can, I can tell that story. I'm kind of curious. Yeah. Uh, okay. But let the record show it. As he says, there's video that I can see. Sorry, you guys don't see this, but this smile comes out. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, it's amusing to tell the story, but although, you know, it really wasn't, um, uh, at the time, it wasn't so amusing for the uh, gentleman in question. But the, I was actually in medical school. Before I met uh, your sister, you know, I really didn't travel at all. And this was actually a really my first real as an adult uh, overseas trip and my wife your your sister took took me to india so we had lots of adventures and it was very really interesting for me so but on our flight back home and you know the flight from india is a very long flight i hear over the speakers or a doctor and so of course i look over sideways and no one gets up so i go over there and there's an older uh, gentleman there, and I say, so what's going on? And he says, well, uh, I have a, a prostate issue, and I haven't urinated for quite some time, even before I left India. And uh, it really is, is it's, it's very painful, and uh, I, he was in a lot of pain because he had distended bladder, and he couldn't urinate. And he was, he's going to be on a flight for like 16 hours. and he's Well, we're not on the flight for 16 hours. We're on the flight for about six hours at this point. Okay. No, I mean, he got on a flight that was going to take that long, despite yes. having a full bladder that he couldn't empty. Correct. Interesting choice. Uh-huh. Uh, it is. And if you look up on Seinfeld episodes, it was kind of like uh, George Costanza does this uh, when he's going to India. So something to, uh, to I don't know if they stole from now. And <laughs> so I said, okay, you need, let's see how things go. Let's see if the pressure builds up enough that you go to the bathroom. Because when the prostate swells up, you know, it kind of it blocks the ability of the urine to drain out through the urethra, which is the exit drain on the in the um, urinary tract. So he couldn't he couldn't go. And then he's really writhing in pain. I'm checking on him every hour or so. So now we're about uh, eight hours and we're, we're midway through the flight and he, he can't take it anymore. And he's in a lot of agony and he's got a cardiac history too, by the way. So he has a disease called atrial fibrillation where one of the chambers of the heart doesn't contract 
contract well or every once in a while contracts, which is problematic because when you have a chamber of the heart that doesn't contract, the blood kind of pools a little bit. It kind of has stasis in some areas. And when blood has stasis, it clots. So this is a problem because if you have clots in, in one of the chambers and it every once in a while contracts, that's going to shoot the clots all over the body and it can cause a stroke or lots of different issues. So these patients are typically on a uh, anticoagulant, uh, a blood thinner. And so this was, he had a significant medical issue. So I knew at this point I had to do something. He was, it was getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and he really couldn't deal with it very well. So I said, okay. Um, and I asked the flight attendant if I could see the uh, medical kit, if there was anything in the medical kit uh, I could use. So in my mind, I wasn't expecting much in the medical kits, uh, but I was hoping they had a large syringe and a needle, which would allow me to do what's called a suprapubic drainage. I would have stuck the needle into the bladder because you could feel it and try to drain out some urine from that way and, and decompress the bladder. Not something I was looking forward to in, in someone with a blood thinner. But then what I see is I see a catheter in the, uh, a urinary catheter in the emergency kit, so, which was, why would they have this? I don't know, but it was great. So I needed a couple things. Knowing I had a urinary catheter was great. And there had some sterile gloves, which was also very good. And I said, okay, we don't have any lubricant. So I said to the flight attendant, can you quietly go around and see if anyone has any Vaseline or, or anything that's a lubricant? So this flight attendant gets me some Vaseline. No idea where it came from. Just some other passenger. I, I didn't ask. Yeah. <laughs> now, also with urinary catheter, you, you know, usually there's a something that connects to the catheter, a bag, a, a hose that attaches to the catheter. The urine will drain into through the tube into the bag. They don't have that. So I asked for, I get some Ziploc bags. I said, do you have any type of bags? And I said, oh, you have a Ziploc bag. Perfect. So. I, I get some blankets. I lay him down in the kitchenette. And um, I asked the, the flight attendants to stand on either side of the door, which was, it's all I asked them to do. And I lay him down because I didn't want anyone to walk in. So they, they stood in front of the door. I lay him down. I get the catheter. I put the Vaseline on. I have the Ziploc bag at the end of it. And I feed the catheter in. You do the MacGyver part now. It's like, this is MacGyver. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and uh but I'm going in and I feel an obstruction. There's something blocking it. So I finally, you know, I'm moving it around and I finally, and the guy's writhing around because by the way, there's no anesthetic. Yeah. Oh man. And you can't give him alcohol either. Uh, and, and there's nothing I can do for yeah. him, but I, I'm trying to uh, use what's called speedocaine and meaning move fast. And um, so I feel an obstruction and I just, you know, I pop through it and suddenly there's a rush of blood into the bag. And in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've what's called a, a false passage. I perforated through his, his, um, his uh, prostate or his, and I'm thinking, okay, now he might bleed to death. The prostate is very vascular, but then it turns yellow. It clears up and it's yellow and I drain it. Uh, in fact, it fills up the bag. I clamp the catheter. I switch the bag. I unclamp the catheter. I, I finished draining him out. And, um, and I close the Ziploc bags. And um, he gets up and he's like, he walks out. He's like, oh my God. You're his great. best friend in the whole world. No, he walks out. No, it gets better. He walks out 
I'm like, okay. So I take my gloves off. I, and I, you know, I put the, the, I have to get rid of the urine. So I, I put the bags into some newspaper and I wrap it up. By the way, the flight attendants have left the doorway. They have not, they didn't even let me finish. They actually walked away. I'm like, I hope no one walks in here. So I wrap up the bags in uh, uh, some newspaper going to the restroom and I walk out of the kitchenette. He's already, you know, run and he's with this whole group of people. Uh, like it's an older, like uh, tour group and they all start clapping. <laughs> so you're standing there, newspapers full of urine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I just kind of, thank you. And I go into the, the you know, the, um, the bathrooms and I empty out the urine and I wash my hands and we're done. And um, so that was what had happened was, and this, this occurs, I, you know, and in, in, in retrospect, I actually did some reading on this afterwards and, and some patients with blood thinners and large and large prostates, sometimes a blood clot can form. And that will cause a complete obstruction. So when I hit it, I, I dislodged the blood clot. And that was the blood that came out. So what happened? They bumped you to first class? Yeah, they came out and they gave me like some champagne and they gave me whatever was in the duty-free. They were so happy. And they moved me to first class also. Yes, it was great. It was a 747. So it was like the first time I had ever been in there. That let me go into the cockpit. Oh, that upstairs thing? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And it was pre-9-11, too. So they let me come into the cockpit, and it was great. But the concern on it to me was that uh, the, um, you know, it was it was just madness that this this was occurring in the middle of a flight. And I didn't understand exactly why they were so happy to move me to first class and give me all these gifts from duty-free, because they were going to have to land the plane in Romania. Or wherever they were. No, it was Romania. They were like above Romania at this point. So this is where they were going to have to land the plane. And so this was like, I just saved their plane from having to land, make an emergency landing and take this guy to the hospital. And all you got was this lousy glass of champagne. <laughs> Basically. I, I I don't remember exactly. I think I got a pen. I don't know, a pen and champagne. And But the neat thing was looking in through the cockpit, actually, to look out at the uh, so high up. You know, it's an amazing view. I don't know if you've ever been in a 747 or if you've been ever looked out the window uh, at that high up. Just from on the ground. Yeah, I mean, it's like, whoa, you really see a, a, a panorama of, of of the sky. It's, it's magnificent. Was Susie with you? Was, was your wife with you? Uh, no, my wife was not. I mean, she was, she was on the flight, but she didn't get to go to the cockpit. No, no, we didn't. I didn't know they, they, they just asked me if I wanted to meet the pilots. And I was like, uh, okay. And then, <laughs> and then they moved me. They said, Oh, you want, why don't you move up here? I was like, can I bring, she was my wife, but I lied. And I said, well, can you bring my wife up here too, please? <laughs> they were like, okay, yeah, sure. And then they brought her up. <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I, that's more than I've heard before. And uh, that's quite a story. I'm kind of curious about, there's another story when we were in Fifth Avenue and we were walking along and I don't know what you can say or what you can't say, but there was a big advertisement with a woman on it. And you said, I worked on her. Yeah, that, that happens roughly. You know, you sometimes work with people in the entertainment industry and, and work with people. Can we say where she worked? Um she was, yeah, at this point, I think it's okay because I think that company's going out of business, but was, she was a Victoria's Secrets model. Yeah, that was kind of cool walking down because we were right by like the big Victoria's Secret down on Fifth Avenue in Lower Manhattan. Yeah, and- yeah. And, you know, you see people in the industry and you, what you discover really is people who are 
in the entertainment industry, they really come in all type. They're just like anyone else. Some people take themselves, you know, very seriously. And some people are real arrogant and some people are just really normal. They're nice. And um, in fact, sometimes you don't even know who they are. Particularly, I, I don't know who a lot of people are sometimes, particularly in their, if they're musicians uh, and they're younger musicians. And if they come in, I, I really don't know who they are. And I'll ask someone and say, my assistants will know. And they're like, do you know who that is? I'm like, no. And they're like, he's in this band. Um, never heard of him. They're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so that's happened often. And I'll see actors too. And I've, um, I've seen actors who, uh, and I, I just don't know who they are. And then someone will tell me, oh, they were in this movie. They were this guy. And I'll be like, yeah, okay. But they don't look the same. It's really interesting. A, a lot of actors don't look the same. I mean, like Brad Pitt, you re would recognize Brad Pitt, but a lot of actors who aren't of that, there aren't that many people of that level of fame. So when you meet people of that nature, you don't, a lot of times I'm really bad with it. And I'm like, eh, they look familiar, but I don't really know who they are. I mean. Is it okay to jump ahead to talk about the COVID situation? Yeah, we're living through it right now. Part of the reason why I left the city was that I heard from you, not from you directly, but I heard that like, it, it just sounded like things weren't prepared very well ahead of time, like early March, late February. They weren't. They weren't at all. And I actually think, you know, a lot of things are coming out and I don't want to push blame. I mean, there's really a multifactorial thing that went on and we're just getting bits and pieces of what happened in the government and the public health system. And I think, I mean, we can start in different levels if you, you want. And uh, we're still learning about this disease, by the way. We're still figuring things out. So from what I can uh, see was that uh, now in the media, you can see that I think we saw what was happening in China and somewhat in Italy, but uh, it was already here when that start, Italy started coming out. But we started getting information that this was like, like an influenza. This was like the flu. And so, in fact, it was like the flu, but not as dangerous as the flu. Uh, the death rate for the flu influenza was higher. This is what we're being told. So everyone's kind of like, oh, okay, well, that's not, that doesn't sound too bad. You know, we'll just have to, you know, be a little bit more careful and wash our hands as we always do, but really focus on hand hygiene and, and so on. But it's not going to be a major deal. And especially in my profession, when I'm examining someone close, you know, their mouth, I always wear a mask and, and gloves anyway, and I wash my hands. I, actually, I mostly purell my hands, but it's, uh, you know, this is what it is. What we didn't know was we didn't know exactly how bad this was because we were being told it's like the flu. Well, it's actually not like the flu. What it is, it's like SARS or SARS, but more contagious, which has a very different connotation because we all knew SARS and there was something else, MERS, which was uh, Middle East. And we thought that if, if I had told, if someone had told me this is SARS, but more infective, I would have been like, oh my God, this is going to be really bad. But being told that it was like the flu, it's like, okay, you know, when I was in college and when you were in college, uh, I don't know about you, but every few years I used to get the flu. It wasn't much fun, but, you know, 
it wasn't that bad. I mean, it was horrible, but this is, was a very, this is a very dangerous virus. So am I right that it, it, like they're telling you about the experience for the individual, what the infection feels like, but what's really important is at a social level, at a society level, how it affects groups of people. The infection, right. the infection. Well, they, they haven't told us about this yet. And here's where also, the, this is where the public health and the government breakdown occurred. And this, I, this, I do know. I've been in a lot of meetings now with this, and I've done a lot of reading. And I obviously I read the newspaper, but I've also I've talked to a lot of different people in public health. And and um, so one of the things that that occurred was at the end of the Obama administration. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the end of the Obama administration, that they had the people to they created a team to work on this, right? And it came out of the uh, issues with Ebola, and so they were um, the CDC, and they were developing. Um, basically simulations of what would occur. And this was at the end of the Obama administration. And uh, they were doing basically stress tests of the uh, emergency uh, responses to to any pandemic. And they called in uh, the Trump uh, administration and they went through the stress test with them and they identified areas of, of problems and weakness that needs to be corrected, which would normally have occurred. You know, oh, this is this is an area, and this is normal government. You know, we go through a different administrations, but the bureaucracy typically, you know, remains the same. The heads on top who are appointed changes, but the bureaucracy and, and the government workers remain the same. But what occurred at the at the at the heads of the government, the turnover in the administration was so rapid in, in the first few months that. The people that were actually present at the simulation were left off, left their their jobs or removed or whatever you want to call it. And so all the people in the simulation were gone. And then there was an area of um, a pandemic czar, basically, or someone in charge of dealing with uh, possible pandemics. And um, when John Bolton came in, who was not part of the stress test, he had he. He came in later on, so he doesn't he doesn't know much about this. He says, why do we even have this pandemic? It seems like it's a duplicate of redundant things of other portions of our government. And he removes that portion from the uh, CDC, from my understanding. So it left us very vulnerable. We as a nation, not just you and, and your crew. Correct. We as, an, uh, as a nation left us vulnerable. We don't know exactly what goes on at, at top levels of government, and we probably never will, because it's politicized, and you know, you know people like to point fingers. But whatever, we were we weren't prepared. So fast forward to go to late March, early April, mid April. We're I mean, in the paper, we're reading about lots of stuff going on. I'm really curious your personal experience of it. I haven't heard this before. Well, in the beginning, I also thought, oh, this is, it's like the flu. I don't know why people are going, you know, not so about this. I don't think it's going to affect me too much. I mean, I might get it, but whatever. So I started making sure, you know, very careful on Purell, wearing masks, regular masks, of course. But what's going on now is people are starting to get admitted to hospitals. And they're getting sicker. And we're hearing people, particularly at the city hospitals, and I'm no, I'm hearing about from Elmhurst. My 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 oral maxillary surgery residents go to Elmhurst. It's one of our major training sites. So I'm starting to hear back that hey, you know, Elmhurst is really ramping up. We're getting all these really sick people who have COVID, 
and they're calling it the coronavirus at this point still. And um, it's pretty, it's not very good. They're, they're admitting a lot of people, the ICUs are starting to fill up. Like, really? And that's when we start to have meetings. And I start coming to the realization, I'm getting more and more information about, about COVID. And we're like, wow, this is, this is not the flu. This is bad. This is, and this is when I start finding out that this is, uh, you know, SARS and MERS were both coronaviruses as well, which I wasn't aware of at the time. And I'm starting to do reading now. Now I'm starting to read it and we're getting a lot of information from a lot of different sources. And we're talking to people from China and more importantly, from Italy. And I belong to different associations, different medical associations. And now we're starting to get a lot more real data about what's going on. And, and this is when people are starting to get nervous because the numbers at Elmhurst are really starting to increase and, and you're starting to see it at other hospitals. The numbers just start ramping up. And this is when everyone started getting nervous. And this is when we actually uh, closed our pra- the, the faculty practice at, at Mount Sinai in otolaryngology and, and oral maxillofacial surgery because we know we're at the highest risk for, for getting infected because we're close to the mouth where the, the virus, you know, it's being spread from respiratory uh, areas. And we're close to it and we're working within the mouth. So we're, we're probably at, at higher risk. And so everyone, we kind of shut down that kind of practice. And then suddenly the numbers are still ramping up and the rest of the hospital starts shutting down. And then everything starts shutting down and they cancel all the elective cases. Everything non-COVID. Everything non-emergent gets shut uh-huh. down. Everything non-emergent. You still have emergency cases which need to be treated, but now it's it's scary. And also along that trend, we know people who have symptoms. We know their chest X-ray or the CAT scan of their of their of their lungs looks off and has a particular look to it. But we still don't really have a lot of tests, so we don't really know who's positive. And and, and the tests are limited to access, so. You can't really test everyone, and that's still what's going on now. But you can't test everyone, and but but every, the hospital's now starting to really lock down everything. Uh, now the operating rooms have been converted for the most part uh, into ICU beds because these patients are getting sicker and sicker and need to be intubated, meaning a breathing tube place. And uh, the op- there's fewer operating rooms, and they're limiting. The operating rooms are are sealed. So I actually uh, got called in for a case which was COVID positive, a, a fracture patient sick. And so they had COVID, but they weren't in the hospital because of COVID. They were in the hospital because of a fracture and you had to work on that. Yes. And they had very high fevers and respiratory. And I knew this was a very infectious patient. So we went in with uh, the N95s. I was able to have an N95 mask and a face shield. Uh, N95 masks are, are what are the really tight sealed, very fine mesh, which would prevent the virus from coming in. So I was able to get all the appropriate equipment, but the way that it would work is as soon as they intubate the patient and it's aerosolized, uh, whatever's in the patient's lung is aerosolized. This is any, anytime anyone's intubated. But, and so when these respiratory droplets go into the air, they last for about three to four hours. They float around. It's, it's a lot less when they have what's called a, a negative pressure room, but it's still, it's, it's in the air. So the, what we had to do was we went in there. Every time we, we went into the room, you were sealed up 
in the room. They intubated. You couldn't leave the room. And then we would do surgery. And then one person had to stay in the room and you leave the room at the end of the case. Uh, and everything finished off. And then uh, we actually had the, we usually, after a surgery, you take the patient to the recovery room uh, where they kind of wake up and then they go home, a discharge. But for this case, the recovery rooms are all filled of COVID patients on respirators. Any respirator uh, that's around, a um, ventilator that's around, is um, uh, all the ventilation uh, units are, are, are being used in the hospital. There are fewer and fewer available. So, so all the places where the nurses were had critical care training are being utilized at this point, and that's uh, particularly the the recovery room nurses too. So, really, you start to get a feel like, oh my God, this hospital's starting to shut down. It's it's getting full of COVID patients, and Elmhurst now is is what was considered the epicenter of the epicenter, and you can see all these people in Queens are really sick, and. Um, it's pretty horrible. And now you get a good feeling. Oh my God, this is really, really bad. My residents are telling me stories about Elmhurst. Um, people are, are having respiratory arrests all the time, all over the place. This respiratory arrest means that they're dying? They're dying and they're not breathing. And, and, and they're being put on ventilators. They're intubated and put on ventilators. Here's the thing. And once again, not understanding the disease. And we didn't, we don't, still don't understand exactly how this disease works. It's not a normal disease. It's not a normal pneumonia. Normal pneumonia, the lung kind of fills up. We're, we're seeing that this might be a massive, uh, and there's, these are theories called a, a cytokine, which are an inflammatory um, molecule that our body releases, that people are getting these massive bursts of these cytokines all over their body. And these are causing different effects. So this is why people are getting heart attacks with this or bowel obstructions or even weird skin things. All these things are, are happening and this is not normal. So what we discovered is that when you intubate a patient, for the most part, once you intubate them, they're having trouble getting them off. So some of the numbers are saying, now this is a range and it can't really be put down as a hard number, but Roughly 80% of people, once they're intubated and have this COVID-19, they're not able to be weaned away from the intubation. They have to stay intubated very long term. And the mortality is, is very high. And this mortality is occurring, you know, in the beginning, once again, they said, oh, well, the people at risk are going to be, uh, it doesn't look like it's kids who are usually a vulnerable population. It looks like it's the elderly. But this is true. The elderly are a very vulnerable population to this particularly because they have other diseases and they're, uh, you know, they're frail. But we're seeing also people who are young and healthy in their 30s to 50s, they're dying from this as well. And we're like, what is going on with this? And these are people who are not smokers and, and uh, don't have any other uh, morbidity. Some people are really good shape and they're getting it. So, uh, you know, as it stands now, um, I think we're past it now. Now, you know, at that point, it was really like, it was scary. Uh, it's still kind of scary, It's but it was scary. And there was a lot of fear because uh, people were dying, being admitted, and we still didn't understand how to treat the process. And we weren't getting good, you know, federal leadership. 
the, there wasn't a very good, uh, you know, you expect the CDC to be running the show when this was occurring and, and we weren't getting that much. Fauci was, was good, but then we were getting a lot of uh, noise, political noise. So it was very hard to kind of figure out what's going on. But luckily what was going on with us is that everyone's kind of talking to one another and we're having a lot of, uh, every other day we're having different uh, Zoom meetings and different um, lectures about this. And you're starting to get more and more information about the disease and you start to get a feel of it. At, at a certain point, as this goes along, I get deployed. They're, they're calling for doctors. And in fact, they wanted to deploy me. They didn't want to deploy me because the other uh, oral surgeons in the uh, system were all a little bit older than me and had comorbidities, more diseases. So I was basically taking mo- taking care of most of the uh, patients who had facial fractures and need to be treated, which was okay. There aren't that many because people, uh, there was actually a social thing that occurred, which well, by closing down the restaurants and bars, there weren't uh, as many uh, fistfights. <laughs> And people were kind of staying at home, so they weren't getting into car accidents or being struck by automobiles or falling off of bicycles, all these things that cause facial fractures. So the, my need, I had a couple cases every week, but or one or two cases, but I, I didn't have that much. So I actually wanted to deploy because here I am, you know, as we talked about 14 years of school, I, I really felt like I needed to do something. So finally, I convinced them to let me deploy, and they sent me to one of the COVID wards. And um, uh, it was interesting. And I basically was functioning as like a first year medical resident intern because I haven't, you know, I graduated medical school in, in 98. So a lot of this stuff on, on how to be very functional and efficient resident, uh, these are learned, these, you know, the, the, the skill sets come back, but I definitely was uh, more than rusty. But there's people around you, uh, the internal medicine uh, and critical care people are watching over everything. And you can always call them and ask questions. So it's a pretty safe environment. They just need, they needed people to do the grunt work. And that was really good. But then uh, even recently, they, they undeployed me because the census number shrunk down. And what, what do you mean by census number? Census number is the amount of patients who are being in the hospital with this particular disease. So they're eating, either dying or being... Well, no, the death rate hasn't changed, but the people who are not dying are getting better and leaving the hospital and not being replaced by more patients. The amount of emergency room visits decreased. The amount of patients who are being to the, admitted to the hospital for treatment of their COVID-19 disease are is a lot less and a lot fewer people coming in. So the COVID wards, all the hospital, which had been filled with COVID people, are starting to empty out not the patients who are in critical care, because that's the other thing we discovered. As I told you, if you were intubated, it's very difficult to get you extubated, meaning take the breathing tube out. So the people who are intubated are stuck. The people who are getting better are out. So we tried to avoid intubating patients and give them high oxygen therapy and um, try different medications. And so they were discharged. Is that something that the New York hospitals figured out or America figured out? Did that news come from China or from Italy to try that in the first place? Or how did that come out? We didn't get, we didn't really get good information. From, nothing really came out of China too, too much. I spoke to some people from 
Hong Kong, but still there were some infectious disease doctors, but we didn't really know exactly how to treat these things. Uh, I think we really learned a lot. The Italians actually told us a lot, but it, it was actually a little bit later than we, we needed to know. And so, but now we've kind of got a better feel for it. Our critical care people kind of an understanding on it. We don't know medication-wise how to treat this. And what's coming out now is the ability to test for antibodies for this, which because there are some studies showing that, well, it's probably, it's probably the asymptomatic patient population is probably much higher than we thought. But we don't know that for sure because we have a limitation in the amount of testing kits for the disease and to be able to test also for the antibodies to the disease. Like, for example, is that I've been exposed often to this now at this point, and uh, I had my antibodies tested, and I was actually negative. I did not develop antibodies to it. So either, uh, you know, I, it means I probably didn't get it, which is good that I didn't get it, but it's bad in that I didn't get it asymptomatically, which would have given me maybe maybe some protection against it. We don't know if you had developed antibodies against it, if this actually gives you an immunity to the uh, virus itself. And once again, this is lack of knowledge and lack of data. How fast is this virus mutating and changing? I want to go back to your experience when you had that surgery with a patient that you knew had it and was infectious. Are you scared? I mean, you're a family man. you got kids. Well, I guess the kids probably are low risk, but still. And are you thinking, like, I might die helping this person? I don't know if I'd say I'm dying, but I definitely felt at risk. I mean, I felt I definitely was nervous about it. The way I looked at it was, you know, it's almost like scuba diving. You know, you check your gear, you check your equipment, you check your seal, and you check each other. And that's what we did. We checked each other. We made sure everything was tight. And, and you know, we also have nurses who are watching us. and helping us uh, stay safe and we're helping them. So yeah, it's nervous. And the way I was kind of thinking about it when I'm in the operating room or when we're in these wards where are full of COVID patients, I, I kind of think it is like I'm in a uh, room full of chlorine gas and the have to stay safe. And that takes a little bit of OCD and focusing on every time multiple gloves coming out of the room, taking off one set of gloves, putting on lots of Purell all over. When you walk out of the unit, immediately uh, disrobing and decontaminating very, very in a very particular fashion and doing whatever you can not to touch anything. So yeah, I mean, it's a risk. The first time I came home with a COVID, after the COVID patient and surgery, I decided to, to quarantine myself because once again, as I said, we didn't really know that much about it. After... When I started working on the wards, I kind of, and talking to a lot of people, what I started to do was distance myself. I didn't kind of, uh, I didn't quarantine myself exactly like uh, I did for the first surgery because I knew that one, within 24 to 48 hours, that stuff is whatever had been um, on your clothes, the virus dies. But regardless of that, as soon as I would come home, I would go, uh, I would get undressed uh, right in our vestibule. I'd run upstairs, put my clothes into the, in, without touching anything, put my clothes immediately into the um, washer and put it on hot water and then jump into the shower, clean off 
And then I felt more comfortable. I still did distancing from my kids. I wouldn't give my kids hugs and things like that. And and I would I, would, I wouldn't sleep in the same bedroom as my wife. But but I wasn't as saying, oh, okay, I'm going to quarantine myself because I had no symptoms. And because of that, I didn't really feel like it's as high risk if I'm making sure that I'm content, you know, decontaminating myself and so on. I, I don't think I could spend uh, isolation in my, my basement every time I'm going out. I mean, I wouldn't come out for months and months and months. And I think that's what other doctors too were, were doing. It's just the amount of social contact was a lot less. And, and um, you know, it, it's hard to tell you, it's hard to say what was infectious, what wasn't infectious, what, what was smart, what's not smart. There's only so much you can actually do. So uh, I don't know. And obviously I, I never got the virus, so I wasn't infectious. The question is, did any of my family get the virus through, you know, community exposure? Uh, we don't know either because testing uh for the antibodies is still very limited. The meetings that you had with other professionals, as things are ramping up and you don't know, now there's, I, I read a certain calm because as you said, the, the, the census is going down, but at some time you had no idea how high it would go. I mean, if I interviewed you then, or what were the meetings like with professionals? Were people scared? Were people freaking out? Were people confident? Well, people were scared, not as much for themselves, they were scared because we were running out of ventilators. And as the amount of emissions keep going up and a certain percentage of patients who are being admitted or being intubated and needing ventilators, there was we were almost at a peak point where we were out of ventilators. Some hospitals were out of ventilators, but we were almost at a peak point where we were going to have to start choosing what patients were going to get a, a ventilator who we're not going to get a ventilator or who we're going to be taking off ventilators. And this was almost at that point, Italy actually passed that point where they had to actually make decisions on who they were going to save and who they were not going to save. But we were almost at that point and suddenly, it, and then I, I think our social distancing, our uh, public information, people understanding what was going on, the shutdown of the businesses, people being told to stay home. I, I actually think it, if it worked and it decreased the amount of people who were getting it. So we actually uh, ducked it, ducked the bullet because we were actually really didn't have to make these decisions on, on who was going to get a ventilator and who uh, was not going to get a ventilator. And that really occurred because our governor did a really great job and he was able to get a lot of the ventilators. And, you know, Staying out of politics, the, the, there were ventilators that were sent in from the government, um, the federal government, and also from other states. Everyone kind of stepped up. And so we got enough to, to keep people uh, alive. So that was, but that was the scary thing. You saw this number, you know, it was like a, a, a clock ticking, like we're almost at that number. And you guys were thinking that's like, it's one thing to go in and you're trained to do whatever surgeon does inside a body but you're not trained. It feels like a very human thing to decide two patients, one of them's going to get a ventilator, one's not. Right. And uh, I don't think I would have had to make that decision, but they're definitely starting to talk about who was going to live and who was not. And uh, basically the old triage system of, you know, going to die, can wait, needs immediate care. So that was starting to come in. Uh, I was kind of say, well, 
there's people who are bioethicists, they're ethicists, you know, medical ethicists. I was like, this is what they've been training for for a hundred years, uh, you know, how to make these decisions. And they were starting to chime in. Okay, this is, you know, what we, the considerations, you know, what's the value of life? Who who should be saved and who shouldn't be? Should a an 80-year-old patient with dementia uh, not be as valuable as a, a 45-year-old father of three? Who gets and who doesn't? And the rationale behind it. And that's why actually in New York State, the governor uh, put out a uh, executive order saying that you couldn't be held accountable for in the management of uh, COVID patients. So if you had to make that decision, you weren't going to be turned around. Someone's going to accuse you of manslaughter or, or that nature, especially if you took them off the ventilator without family permission. Is this something you'd lose sleep over or did you guys have serious discussions amongst yourselves of this? Oh yeah, we had serious discussions on it. These are these are discussions that, are, that drive a lot of anxiety. I mean, these are, the, when you talk about, you know, you talked about, oh, was I nervous or scared? This is what made me scared because the numbers are still ramping up. Okay, hey, am I going to get sick? Now I'm being exposed all the time. Am I going to be sick? I have, my lungs aren't that great. My father was a, a, a smoker for his whole life and I was exposed to secondhand smoke. You know, we grew up in the seventies. So people used to smoke a lot. And my father got healthy when he uh, changed from uh, um, un, unfiltered to filtered cigarettes. That was his way of getting healthier. And so I knew my lungs when I get a cold or, or, um, or any type of respiratory illness, it lingers for about two or three months. So I know I have damaged lungs from this. So I'm thinking to myself, if I get this, I, I could actually have a comorbidity that could be life-threatening. And if there's no ventilator for me, I'm going to die. And uh, yeah, that's in your mind. I'm guessing when if you're thinking that, I'm not a father, but I would, th- I would think you're thinking of your kids. Of course, of course. But I mean, you have to do what you have to do. I mean... I don't think I could have lived with myself if I didn't go and try to help out and, and do treat people. If I just stayed in a basement and didn't, didn't move, I, this is my own personal decision. I don't, I don't think I could go back and look and say, Hey, you know, you know, when they talk about COVID and you hear people every 7 PM ringing, you know, making noise and applauding the healthcare workers. I, I don't think I could have slept well knowing that, Hey, I didn't do my part. So that's that's why I really kind of tried to 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 do my part on it, but uh, I think I think we're all getting past it um, somewhat. And there's also a bit of uh, familiarity with it. You know, in the beginning, it's scary because we know nothing. Now we know something, and we know we know how to protect ourselves. We know the appropriate way to gown ourselves and how to wear the mask, how to wear two masks, how to wear double gloves, how to really kind of develop um, kind of an algorithm on how you're going to gown up and how you're going to degown and, and take it off and how to really protect yourself from inadvertent inoculation or contamination from this virus. I'm kind of curious. I want to ask two questions. Do you start thinking about what the next, I mean, everyone said about before this one, it's not if, it's when. So that means there's going to be another pandemic. I mean, there could be a second wave of this, but there's probably going to be another pandemic. I mean, from my personal view, it seems we know where pandemics come from, which seems to be like factory for putting a lot of animals very close together, close to other animals very close together. 
Are we prepared? No, actually, let's hit that one, Josh, for a second. I don't know if that's quite true. I, I don't know if that's quite true. I don't think... There's also interaction with wildlife. I mean, it's not one thing, but... Yeah, we hear, like, say, the uh, bats were, were have been brought up. You know, the meat markets in Wuhan, you know, this one market in Wuhan where was considered to be the center of where it occurred. But what really occurred was that there's no herd immunity to this new virus. And a herd immunity is when enough people have had it or have immunity to a virus. It can't, it, it's almost like having firewalls every place. It's hard to spread it to different people. So a pandemic can occur. The problem with, with this and with other future pandemics is if we hit a disease that we don't have a herd immunity to, it's going to spread like crazy. So when you talk about, you know, did this animal um, factories and so on, the people in the animal factories like the slaughterhouses got sick because they're close together. And there, there is no social distancing in the animal uh, hospitals. So they're all getting sick because they're all together. And that happens in every situation where people are all together, close together, and you know, are being contaminated by someone who's infectious. So when you talk about, oh, you know, animals and dealing with animals, I don't, we don't, first of all, we don't know where this came from. There's been a lot of statements, oh, this came from a lizard or something. This came from a bat. We don't know that. And there's a lot of, if you try to track down where this information came from, it's uh, a lot of it is is just internet chatter, and it's and like for example, this you even go back to the death rate for when we're being told, uh, and from the beginning of our conversation, where I said the death rate for this was lower than the death rate for influenza. That's completely not true. And uh, when you start tracking, where did this number come from? You can't find out where this came from. This is false information that was was out there, and uh, and when you really start to look at this, so we don't know where this came from. We don't know if this came from animals. We don't know anything. We know it started in a meat market, but was that because whoever got infected was in that meat market and there's close proximity and you're walking around? Was it one of the people who were selling and had a busy stall? We don't know. Nobody knows. So it's early March, and I'm hearing that. This stuff is spreading. And so I decided to come out here 90 minutes outside the city. It's semi-rural. Was that a, a sound decision? And if so, if not, how do I know when to go back? Well, whether it's a sound decision or not, that's really a, a I would say it's a personal decision. I mean, how do you look at this? If we don't know, I don't think it was a wrong decision because we don't know social distancing. We didn't know if, if it was going to work. It sounded like it was going to work, but a lot of things sound like they're going to work. So way back when you came out there, this was still almost like the zombie apocalypse. So I don't think it was wrong to run for the hills. The only thing I would say was that if you had already been infected and were asymptomatic, you know, your your mother and your father-in-law are in their 80s. Yeah, so that's I said to her that it's possible that I have it and not know it. That, so that was, I feel like that was her decision. I gave her all the information. I, you know, here's my history. I have no symptoms, but I took the subway several times in the past week and things like that. So she 
and her and and my stepfather talked about that and they were comfortable with that. But I'm curious, how do I decide when to go back? I don't know. I don't know. This goes back to one of these things that I don't, no one knows the answer to this because yes, is social distancing worked? Did the numbers who are being, you know, we talk about flattening the curve. You heard this term often, and just to review for for people listening, the curve was how many people are going to get infected. And the people that get infected, when are they going to get infected? And if they happen all at one time, the curve is going to be, there's going to be a peak and it's going to overwhelm the medical system, ventilators, healthcare professionals, bed, you know, hospital rooms. The idea of flattening the curve flattens, it doesn't decrease the number of people who are going to get infected. It decreases the time when they're going to get infected. It increases the length of time. Yeah, because that means instead of everyone getting sick in March and April, people are going to get sick from March to August. But the medical system can handle it because you've the but the number of people who are going to get in sick are still that number pretty much won't change. It, it might shrink a little bit, but there's still going to be a lot of people who are going to get sick from this. But it it slows it down somewhat. And maybe maybe a herd immunity will will form, which will also decrease the infectivity. Maybe it gives time for development of a vaccine. There's a lot of things that go into this. Now, going back to your your statement, when should you come back to the city? There's no ability to answer that. I can tell you that you, who live by yourself in in an apartment, can actually isolate yourself better than anywhere else, anyone else. Think of my staircase and the elevators. The staircase is really cramped and you say it can hang around for three or four hours. So if someone's going every three or four hours, it's always going to be... Well, if you wear a mask and gloves, yeah, it's, it can it can contaminate that way. But I mean, at a certain point, unless you you stay away from anyone, you probably will be exposed to it. There's no really right answer to this. Just like when I started, I, you know, isolated myself away from my family the first time I was exposed. And then now, you know, I, I, I isolate somewhat and I make sure I decontaminate myself as soon as I walk in, you know, almost at, at entrance to my house. But I don't think anyone really knows the right answer to this, Josh. I think it's a personal decision. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. So now I'm going to change the topic totally. Although if, if something comes up to share, please share it. But when I said you've known me for the environmental change in my life, you said, oh, you've seen a lot of other changes as well. So I'm kind of curious about, before this, I was prepared, I wanted to answer for all these people who ask me where all this stuff is coming from. Like, Josh, why do you seem to enjoy not flying so much? And I wanted to give people an outside perspective from someone who's known me for a long time and seen that. But maybe we should start earlier of other changes, because I don't know why my answers don't satisfy people. 
So I want to, I want to be able to satisfy them. What do you, what do you mean? Answers regarding what question? People keep asking me, like, Josh, we, we hear what you're doing. We hear that you're not flying. We hear that you produce little garbage and you like talking about this stuff. And they hear about the burpees and stuff like that. And they're like, where's this coming from? And I tell them, well, you taste the food. It's so delicious. And, you know, I used to not really care about this stuff, but stewardship is it, it, the feeling that it gives me is, is great. And they're like, okay, but really, why? And I don't know what they're looking for. And part of the reason I thought to bring family members on, especially my mom and my dad, was for them to get, I don't know, I can't see me from the outside. Well, Josh, you really want me to share with you my, my, my <laughs> psychological value. I'm not a psychiatrist. I, am, I observe people and I observe you on a personal level for years. But do you really want me to, to think about how you, you focus? You've always been a very focused person. And whether it was from you know physics, uh, business, uh, anything you you go at, you focus on it, extremely focused on it, and you don't get distracted. While you have great focus on different things, it's part of your uh, skill sets that you can focus on things and you don't get off topic very easily. At least that's my observation. Even uh, you know when you talk about your um, what was it called when you are you. Um, Confidence building for men when they want to date women or what I forgot. Oh, the learning exact. attraction, learning dating. Yeah, yeah. You you still focus on that. You became uh, you know, you said, Oh, I want to learn this and become a master of it and be the best in the country. And uh, from my understanding, from what you told me, you were. And so everything you do is is very focused. I, I think that um you don't get distracted to a fault actually with your interpersonal relationships. And I've noticed that for for as long as I've known you is that you you have a lot of friends, but uh, you are very more of a close individual. And I think that that comes from being focused on certain things. You don't get distracted by some interpersonal relationships and, and, and so on. I mean, I'm not saying you're not a friendly person. I'm not saying you don't go out with people, but, but you do. You don't get distracted. And a great example of this is just right now. So I remember you telling me when you did CSA and got the community sustained agriculture, you wouldn't go out to eat until you finished all, you know, to a, a restaurant or so on until you finished whatever uh, eating what is ever in that month's CSA or week's CSA. Yeah, I didn't want anything to go to waste. Yeah. Now, you told me you used to go out, you know, you join people at the table so much. That did probably make some people uncomfortable. It's like, oh, Josh came, but he won't eat. So you don't have that shared experience of eating out with people. So you probably didn't go out as much with people. And uh, it's, it's just that kind of social experience because you're focused on a particular topic and are not going to be distracted by it. And I've always seen you do it in this way. And it's just... it's just. I feel like you're saying I'm very nerdy. No, not at all. I think of nerds as being very focused and very like, and not recognizing... No, being focused is not nerdy. I think you're being focused on different topics and you've changed topics of what you're, you're focused on from science to, to business to leadership and moving into the environment. And you've always remained, when you've changed your focus on the different topics, you still maintain that focus it's very it's razor sharp focus so now the environment here's a great example now you're focused on the environment 
And it's very good. As you say, you're going to have stewardship over the environment and you're trying to educate people on, on how to be more conscientious um, on what they do with the environment to a fault. Sometimes um, it comes out as a bit critical. If you don't know you as well as I know you, um, you look at it as being an educator of it. Other people can look at it as like, he's so preachy because you're so focused on it. It comes up in every conversation. This, 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 this is your focus. So you're making sure that, you know, it becomes part of your conversation with you. And I know you, so it doesn't affect me. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. What you have to say? And if it starts to get not interesting, I'll either change the subject if I can, or I'll just kind of like, well, good talking to you and walk off. <laughs> so when I, I think a lot of the stuff that I do, anyone could do, but maybe I should not think that way. Maybe if other people aren't this focused, then what I do might seem extreme. I mean, I tend to think of my food has become very affordable and very accessible, but maybe that's just because within my focus, it is, it's that way, but for others, it might not be so much. Well, it's not that it's just in your focus. It's in your, your, your skill sets say, okay, I'm, I'm going to focus on this and the way you think is a very regimented way in a very organized way. And you pick it apart like you would pick apart, even back when you were doing physics, you, you pick apart why things work and you do experiments to see how they work. And you, you wanted to get a basis of knowledge. At least that's what I think. You know, I was, we always share the story about um, your sister and I were talking to you and we said, uh, what are you taking? What courses you're taking for your physics? PhD, and you looked at us and said, you're not going to understand anything I'm studying. And we were like, of course we will. And you showed us the titles of your courses you were taking. And we looked at you and said, yeah, we don't, you're right. We don't understand a word of this. <laughs> and the same thing could be said about, you know, the environment. You have a very, you've educated yourself. You've picked it apart. You've looked at it. You've made an observations about things. And I think you want to share these observations about it, but you share your observations without distraction without more small talk it's it just becomes almost overwhelming although i do find you get a little distracted <laughs> if you drink some scotch it's very nice how could i be more effective how can you be more effective well no one wants to get a get a point beaten over their head over and over and over and over again say for, here's an example flying you don't fly you don't fly places so because you're trying to decrease your carbon footprint, and you're trying to get other people not to fly. Uh, maybe you caused the pandemic because people aren't flying. I'll let that one slide. <laughs> but I am flying because I have things to do, and I'm not taking a train. I have a lot of meetings to go to, and I'm not taking a train there. So I fly. So I have no problem with flying, and I know you, you, but every time it would come up, you would say, you know, I'm not flying. Okay. Good for you, Josh. I know you. I know you're not flying, so it's not a. It's not something that we even need to discuss. I'm not having try to convince you to fly. You don't want to fly. You don't want to fly. On the other hand, you've told me about flying and why it's bad for the environment and how much fuel it's using and how much pollution it's giving out. I get it, but it's interfering with what I'm trying to do. So my priority is very different from yours. Your priority is the environment. My priority is my profession. I, I don't think you take that into consideration when you're speaking to other people. 
that they have different priorities than you. And your priorities aren't necessarily uh, the same as mine. And you can't rank them against each other. You can say, the, in your mind, the environment trumps my profession. But in my mind, it's vice versa. So to refine it, it's not that I want to protect the environment. It's that I don't want to hurt people. You see, that's a very, look at what you just said. The way you preface that is like a leading question. You know, do you still beat your wife? I don't want to hurt people. Well, I don't want to hurt people either. Are you saying that flying is the same as taking a baseball bat and smashing someone over the head? I didn't say anything close to that. Of course you did. You said you don't want to hurt anyone. Yeah. Well, I mean, hitting someone over the head with a baseball bat is not the minimum hurt threshold. Yeah, but it's the, it's the wording you just used. You say, I don't want to hurt anyone. So when you say, I don't want to hurt anyone, that statement is like, I'm trying to shame you into saying you're flying, so you must be hurting someone. I would say maybe me not going to a meeting and sharing information or or, or interacting with other professionals on a one-to-one basis is hurting more people. Doesn't that make you feel misunderstood? If I say the reason you're a doctor, look, you like making money and I don't want to stop you from making money. So keep being a doctor because doctors are well-paid. Would you feel a, a motivation to correct me? Unless you are in it for the money, but I don't think you are. And if someone said you're in it for the money, and what do you say? Or how does it, how does that feel? I look at them. Well, I look at them and I think to myself, you have no idea what I do and you have no idea how much I make or not make. And how does it make me feel? I feel like they don't know what they're talking about. Do you correct them or? No, it's none of their business how much or how much or how little I make. Oh, but if they, if they think the reason is for that, do you correct them and say that's not what I'm in it or do you let them misunderstand you? No, because if they even come up with a, a response of that nature, it's not worth it to me to educate them on that. So when someone says that I'm the environment is my priority, that's like saying I'm doing it for the money. In the, in the sense of, it's, I'm not saying it's the same motivation. What I'm saying is it's, it's as off a description of my motivation. It's, you know, different direction, but same magnitude of offness. And so when I say I do it because I don't want to hurt people, that has nothing to do with anybody else. I'm not telling, there's no intent to shame there whatsoever. It's purely because- You just asked me, yeah, yeah, yeah. you just asked me how I could get my message across. And what you just said is interpreted, can be interpreted as a shaming statement. Okay, so believe it or not, there was really zero intent. It was really what was coming from me is like, if you think that's my motivation- then you just don't understand me. And I guess I could have said in the, as a question, if you think that's my motivation, I don't know what the question would be. I would say, Josh, there's, there's a, a book I, uh, I've read, and I don't know if uh, it's, it's an older book, but it's, it's titled uh, How You Say It. So I would say that you say, I don't want to hurt someone or hurt people, or I, I would say that, that is such a simplistic statement, which has a lot of emotional overtones to anyone. If you say, I don't want to hurt anyone, and that's kind of saying to them, but you are. I would say you probably need a little bit more description of why you're... So I have to preface that a lot. Uh, I don't know a lot. It just has to be uh, clear. So I'm not going to problem solve right here, right now about that, but I appreciate... I guess what I'm saying is what that statement's more empiric. It's just very simplistic. This is not going to be how it sounds to others, but I'm saying things that, all right, I'm going to say something really blunt. 
I think I just said something blunt to you. So I think that people have a sense that they're, what they're doing is hurting people. If they didn't, they wouldn't feel any guilt because they have a sense like, yeah, I'm getting in a plane. I know about global warming. I know about to drill the stuff out of the land. We have to displace people and, and crash and, and destroy the land. And, and we have to have the military maintain the supply lines and all the stuff. And I'm paying for it. And I think if people didn't feel in any way whatsoever that this was hurting someone, if I said, I'm not, I don't want to hurt anyone, they would say, what does that have to do with anything? But they don't say what it's have to do with anything. They say, I think they feel like, oh, crap, this is, uh, I got to face facts here. Or I can say Josh is an asshole. Uh, you can say both, but that's not, I think what you're saying is you should change your quality of life because what you're doing is damaging everyone else's quality of life. That's not what I'm saying. I mean, when I'm just explaining myself, it's just to explain myself. I think that people feel guilty because I think they felt guilty before I said anything. And if I, I may, I may expose it. No, it's Josh. I don't think they, and once again, I don't know if guilty is the right word, but when you statement like that is, it's almost like you're making an accusation. Well, now, now at someone, you mean the one I just said about, I think that they already felt guilty. Yeah. I think in general, this topic is, there's a lot of things that are wrong in this world, right? There's just a lot of things that are wrong. There's uh, social inequality, pay inequality. There's uh, sexism. There's prejudice. There's a lot of bad things that go on as as humans. We we don't treat each other right. Your topic that you're taking is is a good topic, but it's it's just one of many. And so I don't think people want to hear, you know, when making a statement of a very empiric type of statement and just in general in life, it's good to be an educator and telling me what I don't know. I'm glad when people tell me things I don't know. I've learned a lot of things from you over the years that I didn't know. On the other hand, I some things I'm willing to change my life about and some things aren't as high priority and I don't want to change my life about it. I didn't ask you why you don't fly. I don't particularly, maybe I did ask you, but we know it's a statement that you tell people I don't fly because you, you said you weren't hurting anyone, but you really don't want, it's an environmental problem, which is hurting people, which I, I think is where you were going with. It. I think, I don't want to talk for you, but I, I don't think people want to be, I think there's a lot of different problems in this world and your problem it's not necessarily the top problem in the world. So when you make an accusatory tone, say, I don't do it because it's it's hurting the world or it's hurting people. It's very uncomfortable to be misunderstood about something that's important to oneself. So maybe yeah. I would have to say... It absolutely is. If someone says, you don't, you enjoy not flying. Like my mom on the episode, she was like, I haven't, I don't, I haven't developed the passion for not flying that you have. I'm like, I have no passion... There's zero passion for not flying. It's not like, I think what I said to her is like, I don't have a hobby of not collecting stamps either. I don't go out of my way to not collect stamps. I just don't collect stamps. And if you were to think that my motivation for not flying was not flying or somehow protecting the environment, like say we started sending rockets to Mars and trashed Mars's environment, but there's no humans on Mars. I don't care. Trash it. Give it time. 
you know what I mean? It's if there's no people there, the measure of, of goodness or badness is, is how it affects people. So if someone thinks that my motivation is, is the, the environment to me, that's very abstract. It has to do with people, but I guess I have to not say what it is unless they ask me or something like that, but just say, that's not it. That's a misunderstanding. That would be like saying doctors are in it for the money. Some of them are. Could be, but no, it's, no, there's a 100%. Some of them are. I'm sure some are in for money, some are so status, and I'm sure lots of things, but they're probably not the ones who are going in to expose themselves, to, to risk themselves getting COVID. Some of them are. I don't know. That wasn't what I meant to get at. Uh, I, I don't care what doctor's motivations yeah, yeah. for things at, at this particular time. What I mean is- God forbid you get passionate about it. How I talk about people- it's funny because I want to share my motivations. People keep asking me my motivations and then I share my motivations and people are like, stop making me feel guilty. You aren't the same person who asks. So I'm not, I don't want to con- conflate two different groups of people. I, I think, now here's the, here's the question. When, you, when someone asks you a question about you know, why you don't do something, when you give them the answer and you want to be a leader in this type of topic or or a leader in in educating people about this do you want to get your message across or do you want to turn people off hmm, that's an that's an interesting question yeah obviously the answer is uh, you want to get your message across so maybe it's a better way to say something that doesn't provoke a more quick hostile response what i found a lot is that everybody has faced the feelings of guilt and shame or whatever the feelings are and they've all figured out how to defend themselves and to sleep well at night. And everything that's been tried, everyone knows the answer. There's nothing I can tell you that you haven't heard before where the answer is, it's good for me to fly. There's one thing I know, which is the technique that I use on my podcast, which if you're interested, we could do. I don't think I've done it with you. And that gives people an experience where, oh, it's not as bad as I thought. Oh, I I like it. But that's not a matter of sharing information. That's a matter of an experience. You, I mean, you know that you've done things and the feeling was much better than you expected and it changed your view, but you couldn't, no one could have walked you through that. I'm not a father. I presume things change as becoming a father in ways that no words could ever have prepared you for, despite you having probably read and heard many words to prepare you. But everyone in their hearts and minds, virtually everyone I've spoken to, has worked out why what they're doing is just fine. They're one of the good guys. And everything I say and do leads, and everyone that anyone, I don't know anyone who's any different. Everything leads to people reinforcing why what they're doing is just fine. And what we're all doing, at least the people I know, is polluting more than anyone in all of history and stepping on the gas as we head toward a cliff. And to me, the, the scale of hurting people is, is very high. But I also know that telling people facts and figures, doom and gloom, that generally, that reinforces them being where they are. Well, I think what you're saying is correct. You know, yes, we are probably at at the precipice uh, of the environment, although things seem to be clearing up as a pandemic occurs. But, you know, things are, are not good. But, you know, was one person not flying? Uh, you would almost have to shut down the the air industry. If you even if you got a hundred people not to fly or a thousand people not to fly, you know, uh, not for nothing. The you're probably the best message for getting people not to fly has probably been this pandemic. We've we've done more Zoom meetings. 
we're not flying around as much. Airlines are shutting down. Let's see how this works on the environment. But I, I don't know. I mean, like you just said, like everyone knows that probably flying is not good for the environment. I don't think anyone will say it's not good for the environment, but there are people that say a lot of different things. But it's really just what what is your priority? Is your priority, can you kick the can down the road to deal with problems that are in front of you? And I think that's where a lot what a lot of people do. You, I don't know. I've told you this in the past. You know, I don't love to fly. I don't like to travel. You know, my first international travel occurred when I was in my late 20s. So to me, it's easier to say, hey, I won't fly. But mine's a personal decision. It's not has to do with the environments. I don't like to fly. I don't like to travel that often either. So your message and my habits kind of meet up. But I definitely don't want to be told that if I do get on an airplane, I'm hurting someone. I think that reverberated in, in that it was a, it was a, I think when you said that, that was a very, uh, that was like a, a smack, like, Hey, you're flying, you're hurting someone. Boom. It didn't help your message. That's what I'm, that's what I'm telling you. Okay. What if you were doing something that you didn't realize it, but actually was causing someone to get hit on the head with a baseball bat. And you had no idea that that was happening. You know, imagine you had, you had a pair of shoes and it was manufactured in some way that caused some buzzer to go off somewhere. And someone got hit over the head with a baseball bat every time you took a step. Would you want someone to tell you that? Of course. Well, here's the question for you. If I told you I had to take 20 steps to help a hundred people, or if I didn't take 20 steps because I was hurting 20 people, which one, where's the balance? Who gets the ventilator? Who doesn't get the ventilator? So that, there was a balance, that balance had a certain place 50 years ago. And in, in 50 years since then, the carbon dioxide levels have gone up, the, the, the levels of wilderness have decreased, the time to fix things has decreased a lot. Does that change the balance at all? Because everyone uses the same argument and everyone always wins it independent of any numbers. So you say, what if taking 20 steps killed 20 people, but I saved 100 people? Well, yeah, but that's what you said. That's where it ends. No one gets past that. Everyone's like, see? Okay, so how do, I take a, how do I take a step without hurting someone? I still have to get somewhere. If someone doesn't value stewardship, I can't work with them. But if they do, and they've used these, I'm going to say it my way, and I apologize, uh, but they come to the conclusion and then justify it. I think we all make choices that way. First, we decide what we want to do, and then our intellect rationalizes, oh, that's why that was the right thing to do. But we, if asked afterward, we tend to say the reason, the justification after the fact was actually before the fact. That's how we feel. So I think a lot of people decide, well, I want to keep flying. Should I say that again? It was. No, no, no. I'm, I'm working through it. Okay. So people say, I want to keep flying. I hear what you're saying. You're right, but I'm still going to keep flying. Yeah. People, I think they want the result. So say they want to go see the Eiffel Tower and then they learn that flying pollutes more than they thought. And then they think, well, but I want to see the Eiffel Tower. And so they justify in their minds why actually this is actually worth it. Everyone would agree. And then when someone says, oh, are you sure you want to go to the Eiffel Tower? They'll say that thing, that rationalization that actually came after the choice to go, they then say that's the reason why it's okay in the first place, as if now it becomes in their minds a, a watertight, ironclad reason. And any mention of something reinforces that. 
That's the pattern that I see. But you really can say that about anything, Josh. Yeah, that's how we make choices. And that my, that's my understanding. It certainly resonates. I, you have to look inside your mind and see how it happens. And I have only, my own mind is the only one I've ever observed to the extent if you even observed that. But it seems that the reasons people have, I believe, are post hoc rationalizations. And they always win in their mind with all arguments. So I try to avoid getting into arguments. When I said, I don't want to hurt people, actually, that's probably post hoc rationalization as well. But my point of saying it was in no way to try to debate or argue or shame. And I think that my read is that it, it, it messes up people's rationalizations. And so they get angry. Well, it's, well. Now, of course, and so, and, and so it's ineffective. But saying a statement like that is like, um, uh, you could say that about a lot of things. Oh, I don't want to hurt anyone. Because if you say something like that, like, I don't want to hurt anyone. And I know you fly, so you're hurting someone. I didn't say that last part. No, I know you didn't. That's the, that's the assumption. I, I wasn't even implying it. If you inferred it, that's I can't stop that, and I have to address that. That's actually right. That you weren't you weren't implying it. You didn't state it. You didn't imply it. And I did kind of you know took that as if that statement is true. If you're making a statement that is true, I don't fly because it hurts the environment and it hurts people, and thus it hurts people. If you just jump to that point, it just why don't you fly? Because it hurts people. I don't want to hurt people. I can say that about a lot of things. I don't want to hurt people. But we're having this discussion, and that's why I brought up that topic, oh, do you still beat your wife? Because basically, there's no way wrong. There's no way to answer that question. There's no way to argue. You have to argue that question for you to justify in your mind. Because I don't want to hurt people. Flying hurts people. So you're hurting people. So you're saying if, if you fly, it hurts people, but if I fly, it doesn't hurt people. By you stating that that statement that flying hurts people and I fly, you're, you're automatically, the other person's going to say, hey, Josh just told me that because I fly, it hurt people. You're going to get, a, you're gonna get a, a response back to that, a hostile response back to that, because they're going to say, screw you, Josh, you do things that hurt other, you do other things that hurt people. Yeah, the reason I'm, I'm continuing this conversation Here's what's clear. All right. I'm saying something that feels right to me. Years ago, I, I know that you can be right and annoy people. You can be right and lose friends. I'm not trying to say here, but I'm right. I should be allowed to say it. That's not my point. And I, I take it that that's why you're in this conversation is not also to say, Josh, you're wrong or something like that either. What I'm trying to get at is what can I say differently? And simply not to say that, not to say anything just from what you were saying, it's like, I should just not bring it up sometimes because, but the thing is, there's never a right time to bring it up. As far as I know, I've never come, I I don't know of any person, there's a lot of people talking about these issues. And I don't know of anyone who's able to bring it up in a way that other people are like, I'm glad you brought that up. If they'd like to, if they want to see the Eiffel Tower fly for whatever reason, I'm not aware of anything that works. If there was, I would do it. And I'm trying to see if I can get there. But you see, but see, these are, these are great, great questions. And I, I don't know how to, how to say it in a non, I, I don't know the right way to say that is to say, uh, you might want to see the Eiffel Tower, but you know, you don't really need to see it in person anymore. There's ways to see it virtually that are just as good. Yeah, that doesn't work. 
anyone who's listening to this and thinking Josh thinks he's right and therefore he can say something that makes him a jerk, that's not at all what I'm getting at. Michael is is responding in a way that's you're just factually or you're just retur- you're giving me feedback without amping up the emotional intensity, which is what generally happens. And it's rare that I have something like that, especially with someone who's known me a long time. So I appreciate that, but I don't really know where to go. I'm I'm hoping to get something. There's actually one insight that I haven't gotten that maybe is painfully glaring. But my, yeah, my starting with that, while it wasn't my intent to checkmate people, they're going to feel like he's trying to checkmate me with the first move. And I'm not going to get stuck in a corner like that. So up yours, Josh. I also didn't start with saying, how can I not hurt people? Uh, Don't fly. I started with an experiment of, can I go for a year without flying? Not expecting it to work. And it changed my life, the experience, that I enjoyed it more than I expected. I think I know, I think I know, I think I already know a a lot of it. Because we've had discussions over years and years and years and years, getting to the point where I'm not going to fly. And that's, I mean, that goes back to a lot of things. I'm not going to eat packaged foods. You know, I'm not going to eat meat. I mean, you go back further and further and further. You have, you do take on things and you say, you think about them and say, this is the way I can make a difference. The question is, and you want to share why this made a difference for you. And this is why I think when you tell people things and how this can make a, if this made a difference for me, it might make a difference for you. And that makes a difference for everyone. I always kind of caught that from you and you get passionate about something and okay. And sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong. I'll give you an example of something you did right. I mean, when I look at things that changed my life, I I sometimes hear your voice for possessions. Remember that? You said you got to decrease possessions. And that changed my life Mm -hmm. a lot. I got rid of a lot of books. I had 50 boxes of books, which I got rid of. I got books electronically and on my Kindle. Of course, your response to that was get rid of your Kindle. But <laughs> did but, I say that? I okay. Yeah, you said it. Um, <laughs> the, so that was that made a difference. Great. That message worked for me. And do I fly as much? No. I, but I didn't. I never flew that much anyway. I don't like flying. So your message of don't fly at all. Okay. Sometimes I have to. But I don't fly often. That I know I didn't say I don't, don't fly, like fly at all. Anyways, I'm sorry. No, I know. But I, that was jerk of Yeah, me. you're right. You're right. Once again, I, it's inferring that flying is bad. I don't fly. It hurts people. So you shouldn't fly. Right. I'm making all these assumptions from different points because I'm getting to the point to me, like, you know, why would I get an emotional response to what you said? You made a statement, you know, flying hurts people. I don't want to hurt people. I go back to myself, it's like, huh, I fly, I must hurt people. I'm not, I'm going to react negatively to that. You know, the more I think about it, I'm like, yeah, you're right. I fly and it's not good for the environment. So it's not good for humanity. And which is a better way of, I think, stating it's less personal. When you say I hurt people, you know, if you close your eyes and say, okay, think of 10 people, you know, in your head, that's personal. It's personal. If you hate humanity, humanity is a nebulous type of of concept. It won't send your message home if you say, "Oh, because I'm hurting humanity if I fly." In fact, it it, it waters it down. It, it's less personal of a message. But uh, what's your purpose of saying that? Is your purpose just to tell people what you think, or is your purpose to help 
get the message across that flying is not good for the environment and not good for humanity. Are you trying to get people not to fly as much or not to fly at all? I mean, what's your purpose of staying, staying that? Yeah, I mean, when I said it then, it was to correct a misunderstanding of feeling I felt misunderstood. To me, doing stuff for the environment is like this abstract, nebulous concept of the environment. And and I'm not satisfied with that myself. Like the environment, what's the environment? Is that the whole universe? Is that and so I had to go through this whole path of of analyzing why I did what I did and so forth. And ultimately it comes down to I don't want to hurt people. But if my goal is to be understood, then I have to say it in a different way. And also that not, that's not why I started not flying. That's why I continue not flying. That's the post hoc rationalization. So I guess I have to go back to think of, I think it's a very long story to say what led me to it in the first place. And I guess I just have to tell people, look, it's a long story. And I, I don't know of any way to say it, why I don't fly, except a long story. If you want to hear it, I can share it. But it's not just because of the environment. And if they want to engage on more, I'll tell them, well, you got an hour? Otherwise, I don't know. I have to go by the conversation. Hmm. It is a long statement. Yeah, so I got to play around with that. You, you have to play around. It's too, I guess it's too empiric. I, I just think it's too, too simplistic. People need a five-minute explanation. They don't need an hour-long explanation. And they certainly don't want to hear a they 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 don't want to hear a thirty second statement or a fifteen second statement for a complex thing. They also don't want to hear an hour. They want to hear about they want to hear three, four, five minute discussion about because that's interesting or a story or something like that. I, I think also that um, if I'm not flattering myself here, I have a dream was a, an amazing speech, but Martin Luther King couldn't have said it during the Montgomery bus boycott. I mean, he had to Correct. work for years and years and years and develop his message and develop, you know, and it takes a long time to say, oh, yeah, it takes a really long time to say something in a small number of words, to to say something in a meaningful way. Anyway, I got to work at it. Call Bob Dylan. Highlighting, for, highlighting where that, where something went off the rails. I, I'm definitely not trying to say, oh, but it's right. Therefore, I can say it. I can't stand when people pull that one. So now we're approaching two hours. I, I didn't mean to uh, keep you so long. It's good. I'm always here to talk to you, Josh. Yeah, we could continue. I could go into the the process, which you, you've seen the first TEDx talk, so you know it. Uh, but um, I'll leave it to listeners if they say, hey, jo- Josh, bring Michael back again. Then unless you want unless you want to go into it. You'll have to pay me more. <laughs> You'll have to pay me a lot more. <laughs> I knew you were in this for the money. <laughs> I'll just need to be paid in delicious food. I have made... Famous no packaging vegetable stew for you and your family. And I know that your kids <laughs> liked it. They're like, what's that? And they ate it. And they're like, oh, this is really good. <laughs> all right. All right. But I think the pressure cooker is up here now. So we want to end on a statement? Do you have anything that you want to share? It could be COVID related. It could be just you related. It could be um, related to what we were just talking about or anything. Or you could pass. Um, and that's so complicated. I mean, if I could tell anyone about it, anything about you, Josh, I could say that like any other individual, you're, it's complicated. You're complicated, and the better they know you, the less hostile your message is. So Josh is a nice guy. He means well. Well, thank you. I'm going to have a glass of scotch here for you. Maybe you can have one there for me. I'll have one there for you, too. Okay. Cheers. Well, Michael Turner, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh Bode. Bye-bye. After that long conversation, I can't comment on everything I'd like to, but... 
But after stopping recording, we continued to refine the message that she was saying to me about I don't want to, when I said I don't want to hurt people, to where I think I think he could say how he felt in a way that would help me. That I think he would say, Josh, even though you felt misunderstood, if you want to communicate to people effectively, you're going to have to deal with that what you say, no matter how much you're just describing how you feel, people are going to hear it in certain ways. If you want to be understood, you have to take responsibility for recognizing that they're going to hear something, whether it's what you wanted to say or not, they're going to feel hurt. They're going to feel argued at. They're going to feel uh, checkmated. If you want to be communicated, if you want to be understood, you have to take responsibility for being understood. I don't know how to do it, but that's your deal. Also, we spoke about something that came up in my mom's episode that made a big effect on him, which was I talked about, and I'll do a separate episode on this, but how I said in my mom's episode that there's Archie Bunker, who's the racist with the heart of gold, and there's Meathead, who in the 70s was, you know, he was not sexist and not racist, but people kind of liked the Archie Bunker character. But, and this is what, what Michael said, this meant a lot to him, a racist with a heart of gold is still a racist and is still hurting people, whether he or she wants to or not. I think that got him thinking. I got to work that one out a little bit more. So there'll be a future episode that comes up about me talking about All in the Family a little bit more. If people are young and haven't seen All in the Family, well, there's episodes online. I'm sure you can find them somewhere. And there's the Wikipedia article. Anyway, we'd been speaking about three hours by that point. We knew we would talk more and we just left it there. I think there's a decent chance he'll be on again. Can't say for sure. But most of all, I was glad that he didn't disengage or heighten emotional intensity, but gave me feedback that was useful. For me, maybe that's selfish, but I valued it a lot. I hope you got a lot out of it too. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.